0: This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org donate.
1: This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about like... I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about
0: food.
2: They recognized that safety was our motivation, and, and they were very you know receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish.
0: A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered.
1: Tune in to Meet N3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Jacqueline Rowell, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our new issue features articles and special sections on ingredients from salmon to chicken, taste and technology in East Asia, and excursions and exploration of food and mobility. As well, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID Dispatches, short portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For six weeks, join special hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we speak with authors. We have two guests this week, Amy Bentley and Stephanie Borkowski. Amy Bentley is Professor of Food Studies at New York University and author of Inventing Baby Food taste and health in the industrialization of the american diet published by university of california press her current research projects include a history of food in american hospitals and the meanings and uses of food production in religious communities stephanie barkowski is a master's student of food studies at new york university she holds an undergraduate degree in history from mcgill in montreal Her current research explores the relationship between food and power in colonial relations. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jackie. Thank you for having us. Amy and Stephanie, we're here to talk about the Food and COVID 19 New York City Archive, an online collection that you discuss in your new article in Gastronomica on mapping the pandemic's effect on food in real time. So please tell us a little bit about what you do and how you started the archive. What is the collection about and and how did it come about?
2: It came out of a a food history graduate seminar I was teaching in the spring of 2020. We started the class normally as uh, I do every semester in January and February, and we talk about food from uh, foraging uh, societies to globalization. And we were marching along on our, on our topics and all of a sudden uh, our class got waylaid by the pandemic. And NYU uh, closed its in-person classes, sent everybody home and we started uh, our classes online and started the rest of the semester um, to hold classes via Zoom. We had The students had weekly papers and a final research project to do. And at some point, it just seemed so silly not to be talking about the pandemic and not to be talking about food since it was so central to what was going on. So I let the students write about uh, food and COVID for their weekly responses and also for their final research projects. And out of that turned such interesting information. I just thought we've got to do something with this. And I realized that what was going on is we were collecting data. We were collecting primary documents, first person narratives, accounts, visuals, recipes, um, news articles that could be useful for people down the road to study this current moment of um, food during COVID-19. So that's the origin of the, um, the, the idea. And from that, we decided to make an
3: archive uh, and it just went from there.
2: Stephanie,
3: something to add to that? Oh, yeah, just to add on to that. So I was in that class and it was really a great opportunity to be able to reflect on what was happening. And that is how you said, Amy, that how the archive really came about. So, you know, the archive now has a lot of the submissions that the students had written, Mm -hmm. but it also has submissions from the public. Mm-hmm. And um, if I can just put out there the website where people could submit now is um, wp.nyu.edu slash food and COVID-19. And, you know, it's just made up of photos and reflections from people's experiences with food during the pandemic.
2: Right. As, as Stephanie mentioned, she was in the class and was also already doing some research for me uh, on another project and so at the end of the class, I got a little money from um, the Association for the Study of Food and Society, ASFS, as well as some support from NYU to continue the, uh, the project, the collecting and uh, curating of the um, the data through the summer. And so uh, Stephanie came on to help with that project and we're continuing it through the fall. Uh, we'll assess at the end of December, see where we are, and then make a plan for 2021, if need be.
1: Fantastic. Um, thank you. Now, before you tell us a little bit more about the kinds of items and stories that you're archiving, uh, let's talk a little bit about the process of collecting more broadly. So why is it important to collect at a time like this? And how does this current moment of crisis connect up to food history? And you know, wh- what do you see as the role of the historian, um, the food historian as, at this time?
2: These are great questions and the pandemic really made me think about this. Um, I'm a historian. I like to look at uh, events that happened in the past. I look at documents that have been collected uh, in archives and newspaper archives that other people have curated and collected. And this was a moment when I started to think of myself as a collector, as a curator. I thought, you know, this moment is so intense especially in New York City, when in March and April, you were seeing um, the, the numbers just skyrocket and we were the center of the pandemic. And it, it was really frightening. And I remember writing some, some emails to a listserv and talking with the students. It was just clear we were all so palpably affected. I thought, this is such an important moment and we're going to forget these feelings. We're going to forget what we did and what we felt and I, as a food historian, felt like you know this is my moment. This is I can contribute to the historical record by um, by gathering these images and and narratives and feelings, so that people down the road, as I said, can can understand this moment
1: more viscerally. Thank you, thank you, Amy. Um, now, what kinds of materials? Are you finding and collecting? Um, so, broadly speaking, who has contributed them so far? Um, if you can tell us a little bit about that process, some examples of the stories that you've collected um, that document the effect of the pandemic on the New York City's foodways?
3: Sure. Um, I'm happy to, to respond to this. Um, so the kinds of materials we're looking for really range Um, We're we're happy to collect photos and signs and stories and reflections from people Um, you know we've received a lot of written reflections and photos of people's experiences cooking and eating at home especially Um, these aren't things that are really captured by the news um, in terms of the food systems in New York City but I think they could tell us a lot about how people are functioning through this time So we've had some really, really interesting submissions, Um, some that come to mind. One specifically is an NYU student who bought a grain mill and started making his own masa early in the pandemic. And he submitted some beautiful photos of the process and also the final product, which looked delicious, Um, as well as a written piece about it, which touched on family and tradition. And he presented it as this great parallel to the sourdough trend that was happening early in the spring months when everyone was you know, babysitting their starter. And instead he was making making his own masa, which was very cool. Um, yeah. So we've had a lot of submissions like that, um, specifically about how people's daily routines have changed around food. Um, we could think back to the early months, how grocery shopping changed. Um, there was one piece that captured the anxiety around grocery shopping in March and April specifically. And the student talked about putting a mask on and going to the grocery store. And this was before they put limits on numbers for people who were allowed in the store at one time. So she really captured the feeling of panic and chaos and eventually her decision to switch to online grocery delivery. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, thank goodness the panic, which drove a lot of people to overstock on shelf stable foods has calmed down. But some things like, you know, the simple act of putting on a mask to go out, they're still part of our routine. And we I think we've forgotten how strange it felt maybe when we were first doing it in March. So being able to go back and read these stories, it really brings to life that anxiety that everyone's feeling in March and April in New York City. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and have you each contributed to the archive as well? And, and can I ask, you know, um what was one of the first things that you contributed? Uh,
2: I went around my neighborhood and started taking pictures of um, restaurant windows and storefronts um, because in New York city, I think as everywhere. Um, there was just a ban on restaurants. There was a ban on anything but ex- essential uh, services. And at first, you know, restaurants eventually started doing takeout and figuring their way through the pandemic. But in the beginning it was just like, a ghost town. And I remember walking through the streets of Greenwich village, taking pictures of um, the window fronts with the signs. Uh, We're closed for now, but we're going to come back. You know, um, every, every sign seemed to have a heartfelt message to the public. Like we're in this, but we're going to get through this. Um, Please don't forget us. Uh, You know, it was just interesting to see the, the heartfelt, intimate, almost, messages that these restaurants were sending out to the public so i took a lot of photographs of those
3: yeah i'm i'm glad you brought that up amy because we got obviously we got uh submissions from you but from other people from photos of restaurants all kind of in the same neighborhood and they may seem insignificant but they're so important because because we got ones in the same neighborhoods over a, a number of months you got to see it change and you know you pointed out the the closed signs and the messages to neighbors and patrons. But then the summer we started to see those same restaurants with outdoor dining that started out just as tables and chairs. And then they built up these whole structures and it's been really cool to see those changes.
1: Mm-hmm. And so a lot of stories about uh, daily routines, uh, photos, menus, public signage. Um, and so for those who are thinking about contributing um, an item to the collection, um, what would be your, your advice uh, or guidance to them? What marks something as noteworthy or valuable or, or worth keeping? Uh,
2: well, if we knew that, (laughs) but I mean, at this point, like everything seems relevant, you know, receipts, Mm -hmm. menus, photographs, pictures of one's own meals that they're making, Uh, empty grocery store shelves, um, outdoor dining venues. Uh, I just took, maybe this is getting ahead of things, but uh, over the, the November 3rd and 4th with the election, the city was terrified. People were worried about violence and unrest depending on the results of the election. And so I went around and I took pictures of those restaurants, again, that had now boarded up their storefronts with plywood because they were afraid of... What might happen, but yet there were still signs on the front of the door. We're open. Come in. Open, you know. So even though they were boarded up and had these uh, plywood all over their their restaurant front, uh, they were still open for business, which was very surreal.
1: Right, and 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 so it's really you know the, these are items within a, a broader collection, and the meaning. Take shape in the particular moment, but also um, over time as the narrative um, unfolds. Right, and, and Stephanie was talking about some of the some of the shifts um, in that you've seen already in the archive, even just over a couple of months.
2: Yes, um, and, and actually, you know, uh, some somebody's small personal moment might be the most important of all mm-hmm. because there's a lot of newspaper articles and um, journalism that are tracking things in a macro way. Um, But what will be missing from the record are people's everyday experiences, what they're thinking, what they're doing, how they're coping. Um, And and so these are the diary entries of a century ago where someone might write these things in their diary. Today, um, they're taking a picture and they're keeping it on their Instagram account or they're sending an email to a family member. These are these small individual data points that are so
1: important to capture. Right, these these kind of um, ephemera, mm-hmm. um, and so what have been some of the challenges um, of collecting in in this moment, and and I guess the counterpoint to that is, you know, what have you found surprising too about uh, the experience throughout your work of in the process of documenting the pandemic? Um, Stephanie, do you want to take that one, since you've
3: been mostly in charge of of, of managing the the archive? Sure. Well, something. I mean, maybe this isn't surprising for most people, but as someone who's very food-centered in my thinking, um, it's kind of been surprising what's been covered by the media and what has kind of faded into the background. And I think that a lot of the anxieties and the food systems news has kind of faded out. Um, But the truth is that a lot of the issues that were covered at length in March and April, they're obviously ongoing. You know, if you think about restaurants and food workers and food aid organizations, um, you know, these, these are all issues that continue to exist specifically in New York City. And it's great that so many people have been able to adjust to the quote-unquote new normal. Mm-hmm. New normal. But our food system is changing, and it's, it would be great if we continue to notice and think about it and talk about it? I mean, there's definitely challenges of,
2: of collecting. Uh, we are a very small two-person uh, organization trying to do this. And, uh, you know, just just sending a query out and saying, hey, submit to us is not going to do it. And so we realized the limitations of our efforts uh, when we were trying to figure out the scope of our collection. First, we were you know, just collecting everything from everywhere. Um, and then we thought, no, that that's not, doesn't really make sense. We need to focus it on New York City and even just play on our strengths, which is the NYU neighborhoods and the students who are um, doing projects. My This current semester, February, um, the fall 2020 semester, I have another class full of students who are also doing projects. So their projects will also be added to the archive. And so we're playing our stri- to our strengths, which is um, our institution of New York University and our local neighborhoods. So on one hand, that's disappointing because we're not collecting everything everywhere. On the other hand, it will, will be a small focus collection that will play a part among other collections of this kind.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, and and you know, I just uh, wanted to follow up a little bit more about some of the key themes. So now we are speaking in the middle of November. Mm-hmm. Um, this is eight months after the pandemic reached New York City. So, as you describe in your piece, those early moments in March and April were particularly frightening and uncertain. The city was under a stay-at-home order. So, your archive shows a timeline. Um, showing a sequence of events. On March 12th, we see revenue spike in New York City's grocery stores. On March 16th, restaurants are closed for indoor dining. On March 30th, as caseloads continue to surge to over 6,000 gig workers and grocery and food couriers organized to strike for better safety precautions and hazard pay. The timeline takes us through the crisis by mapping local caseloads with social and economic developments in the city's food systems. Shortages of food and sometimes cooking gas, widespread experiences of food insecurity, closure of food pantries, new grassroots initiatives to provide emergency support, debates over indoor dining. So when we talk about the process of documenting the pandemic's effect on cities' foodways in real time, we see shifts in the kinds of stories and items that are collected. Um, so can you tell us about a little bit more about some of the themes um, that you've categorized? I guess it's a question about classification and curation within the collection. What are some of the pressing issues that you see people talking about and the kinds of contributions they make and also in what they would like to be preserved? And as historians, how are you making sense of, of this information? That's a wonderful
2: question. And it, it's actually been really interesting and gratifying to be able to think about to think about collecting this information, this data, and thinking about it from the ground up. What themes are important? What do we see emerging? What commonalities in the materials are we seeing develop? And then trying to curate and make sense of that data in a particular way without without compromising the, the perspectives of people, of course. So originally we we divided it into uh, shopping, restaurants, and at home. At home, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I can't remember because uh, these were the you know these were the the main um, subheadings we thought that, that, that the data was was um, applying to. So so at dining out, restaurants, and that included you know everything that went along with that, eating, preparing. Cooking at home and the challenges there, and also shopping—the challenges in shopping. But we realized that wasn't sufficient, and we needed to add further, um, further categories. Maybe Stephanie, you can talk about that because you were you were gathering
3: and collecting this data, and you sensed that there that we were missing some things. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we definitely saw pretty early on that food insecurity was going to be a category in itself because, you know, we were seeing a lot about, um, not only food insecurity, but other issues, but some of those other issues like food workers, we were able to kind of fit into the other categories. So food workers doing shopping or grocery work or food delivery, they fit under restaurants or groceries. Um, but food insecurity spanned all three of these Mm -hmm. and really deserved its own, its own category for research. Mm -hmm. Mm Right. And, and also we realized we, we couldn't talk
2: about food in the, in COVID uh, isolated from larger events that were going on. So the, the violence against, um, Blacks and other um, BIPOC, BIPOC populations, the um, Black Lives Matter, the election. Um, this, these were all just inter, intertwined together and we really just couldn't leave these out. So we let the categories bleed into one another and reveal these other issues that are going on in the national and global front.
1: Thank you, Amy. And, and I think that anticipates my next question. Um, so the archive looks at food as a material and sensory thing. Um, and I, 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 in addition, I guess, is the question, it also looks as food as a, as a proxy for more systemic issues mm-hmm. that the world's currently grappling with, um, in which this pandemic has, in many cases, either made worse or exposed in a way that wasn't um, as visible. Um, so can you comment, and then we're going to take a short break, but before, um, before we do that, can you comment a little bit on um, balancing, you know, the, food as materiality or sensory object and its form of representation in a digital space um, versus, you know, food as a proxy for more systemic issues.
2: Yeah. I mean, we wanted all of this. We wanted food to have a viscerality. We wanted as much as possible. It's impossible to smell food through the internet or digitally, at least right now, but we wanted people to experience the food in a multi-sensorial way to just try to engage as if they were there in real time, understanding the food, the restaurants, the shopping, etc. But of course they are all, they are also stand-ins for bigger issues. It does talk about structural, it does speak to sp- structural racism. It does speak to economic inequities that have always existed and continue to exist and were exacerbated with COVID. And so the, the art, the, the artifacts also speak to those larger themes as well definitely
1: Mm -hmm. uh thank you amy and stephanie we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment
0: all of us at hrn have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN can provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new shows.
1: And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten with Jacqueline Rowell in for Lee talking with Amy Bentley and Stephanie Brokowski about their article, The Food and COVID-19 New York City Archive, mapping the pandemic's effect on food in real time, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Just a reminder to our listeners that this digital archive is accessible to the public at wp.nyu.edu slash foodandcovid19. So, Amy and Stephanie, we've been talking about the development of the archive over time. Some of the shifts um, that have happened um, in the way that the scope of the archive has been um, narrowed. Um, it, question about representation: what, what does the archive represent, and what are some of the gaps or silences that you see in the archive um, at this particular moment um, that you're looking to um, uh, attend to? You know, in the in the, in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm.
2: There are big gaps, and this is unavoidable. Um, it, it would be wonderful, for instance, to have a, a equal representation of of things from all five boroughs. If we're talking about New York City, the as well as the metropolitan, the larger metropolitan area, so Jersey, um, Connecticut, um, Long Island, other parts of New York, but that's just not. I, 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 this is the mantra I use with my kids. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> we're just, we're doing the best we can mindful of the, uh, uh, the silences that do exist. So there's not a full geographical representation. We're trying our best to have, uh, g- representation by ethnicity, race, uh, s- social class. Um, and we're, we're, we're doing that through capturing, um, uh, newspaper articles, um, student projects. My students are doing really interesting projects that speak to, say, co- food and COVID in Chinatown among the Asian American population. Or um, there's a community fridge project up in Harlem where people have set out um, refrigerators with food. And people can come, can come just grab food that they need, and if they have some food to share, they can they can put some in. And so through these student projects, we are extending our reach into larger communities. But it's hard. And, and I think what we'll do is as we, as we narrate and introduce the archive, we'll talk about what's there and what's not, what, what the, the archive can represent and um, symbolize and what it cannot. And that will hopefully help it uh, 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 frame it. And then also provide opportunities and show spaces and silences where other people can pick up the collecting and the curating and specialize in, in other
1: areas that we have not been able to reach. Right, right. And, and so in this moment, um, I'm curious uh, if you're seeing a, a difference in the, in the kinds of contributions that people are making, if, if that's changed in the fall. Mm. Um, so case counts now are starting to surge. Uh, The New York Times reported that the daily average across the last week in New York City has been about 1,500 new cases per day, um, with uh, 1,800 new cases reported yesterday in the city. Mm -hmm. And on a national scale, we're seeing record-breaking numbers yesterday, over 150,000 new cases reported nationally. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, does that change what you see happening in terms of uh, mapping the pandemic in real time, um, in terms of the kinds of stories that people are telling or sharing?
3: Um, Yeah, I think as the number of cases creep up, um, like you've said, and especially in New York City as the weather starts getting colder again, I think we're going to see people doing activities that were similar to those in the early spring where people were really staying at home and turning to food for entertainment and connection and, you know, the news is going to continue to cover things like restaurants and industries. And those are super important. But our priority will continue to be finding individual experiences. So, you know, your Zoom Thanksgiving, it, it might not make the news, but it is super important. And it tells us so much about food in this moment. So I think we're going to be hearing hearing things like that.
2: Yeah. And we'll, we're definitely trying to keep up with the evolution of the pandemic and um, how it makes itself known in this in in New York City. So we will hopefully try to anticipate or follow the trends, the changes, and then be able to collect
1: and and document.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so now looking forward, um, the initiative started as a class assignment and it's grown substantially from there. So what do you envision for the future of this collection? Uh, where do you see it going? Um, how, how will it be preserved? And how do you anticipate that people might use it in the future? Mm-hmm. What, what are your hopes? Mm-hmm.
2: We've had some conversations with the librarians and archivists at New York University. And they're quite excited about the project, especially the archivists because the uh, NYU archivists are, are collecting this kind of material um, in a a broad array of um, fashions and not just food. And so the the fact that they know that we are doing this is extremely exciting to them. Uh, We anticipate that, that the archive will eventually be made stable and, part of the NYU archives so that it can be searchable. It can be, um, have a long life and be seen as part of the historical record. So that is very, very gratifying to me as a professor, as a historian. Um, we've got several student projects that are going right now that will be um, attached, embedded in the larger archive. And so it's just I think such a wonderful educational experience for these students to have developed these projects and to see them have a life in the archive beyond their um, their time here at NYU. So that's the plan right now. I mean, our plan is to stop it in December, almost because we're running out of <laughs> we're running out of uh, uh, energy. <laughs> but we'll see what happens in twenty twenty one. I mean, the, this is far from over. And maybe we'll find it's important to continue through the development of a vaccine and the, the slow return to quote unquote normalcy. So we'll just see what happens.
1: Uh, that that's, that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm really excited to see how the, um, the initiative unfolds um, going forward. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Anything um, that listeners should know as we wrap up? And also, Stephanie, if you could share with us once again the, um, the, the link where um, listeners might be interested in, in seeing the archive online.
3: Yeah, thank you, Jackie. I'll just say it one last time for everyone. It's uh, wp.nyu.edu forward slash food and COVID-19. And if you have any questions, you can also email us at food and 19 at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, we would love um, anybody to submit. And my guess is that everybody has some kind of photo on their phone that would be really interesting and relevant. And if you're interested, if you would like to see that saved and part of the larger uh, documentation of this period. Um, it doesn't have to be about New York City. It can be from a different place. We would love to have it, and and it's so easy to to upload. All you need to do is just acknowledge that this is going to be part of the um, part of the collection. But if you don't even want to leave your name, you don't have to do that.
1: Thank you, Amy and Stephanie, uh, for joining us to share this really important initiative. And listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 20.4, which is due out this month, November 2020. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Please join us next week as we talk to John Gifford on salmon and sustainability in the Pacific Northwest.